0: Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church, located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make him known. The New Testament lesson for today is from Acts chapter 2 verses 29 to 41. This can be found on page 1082 of your pew Bible. Peter delivered a powerful, spirit-filled message to the crowd gathered at Pentecost about the resurrection of Jesus, who is the Christ. A reading from Acts chapter two, beginning with the 29th verse. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out on this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For he did not ascend, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word.
1: Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Every week in Life Group Bible Study, we ask people to look for a line that stands out to them as they read the scripture of the week. And as I've been preparing for this sermon, that's a line that's leaping off the page for me. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. It's a line that seems like it could have been written for our time, doesn't it? Well, the reality is it can be read and written and applied to every generation. Because every generation is corrupt. Every generation is crooked Every generation is affected and stained by sin. In fact, I remember being a teenager and having a youth leader read this line out to us Save yourselves from this crooked generation. What we're going to see in today's scripture is this recognition that our generation, our society, our world is crooked, it's corrupt, and we need saving. And what we're also going to see in our scripture today is that sometimes we look for salvation in the wrong place. But ultimately, this scripture points us to the one, the only place we can find it. So let's read this together today to find out how we might be saved from our crooked generation. Acts chapter 2, beginning in the 29th verse. Brothers, Now, I need to pause right there and give some background. I know I'm only one word in, (laughs) but I have to give a little description of where we are in the story. We're going through the book of Acts. We're in the second chapter. This is our third sermon in the book of Acts. I want to just orient us to where we are. Two Sundays ago, Lauren Sumner, one of our youth directors, preached on Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends back to heaven, and his disciples are standing around confused after that happens. Right before Jesus ascends, they ask him a question, this pressing, this burning question on their minds. They say, "Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?" Do you remember that when Lauren preached about that? They were really interested. They had seen the crucifixion and they had seen the resurrection and they had been given this promise of the Holy Spirit, so they understood and they they witnessed that Jesus was the Messiah from God. But they were struggling a little bit. There was a bit of an elephant in the room because they knew their Bibles. They knew that God had promised from the Old Testament prophets that when Messiah came, he would place someone on David's throne to restore order in the nation of Israel. So they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they said, when are you going to deal with the corruption on the throne? Because they saw that Jesus was the Messiah, but when they looked into the throne room of Israel, they still saw corruption there. King Herod, actually one of his sons, was still on the throne. Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says to them, it's not for me to know the times or seasons of my father's authority, but you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, they were asking about national power. But Jesus replied saying, you're going to get power. It's way better than national power. I know what you're saying about the throne room. But you just wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then last Sunday, Pastor Heather stood here and she preached about the fulfillment of that promise. The disciples did wait in Jerusalem. And Jesus' promise was fulfilled. The Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost. Pentecost. And people received this better power, the power to translate the gospel into the languages of people who had come from far away. The brothers that are being addressed in this verse. Pentecost, Shavuot was the Hebrew word for the feast, the festival. Mostly men, it was the tradition for the men to leave their households from all over the known world, Jewish men to come to this festival of Pentecost. And they got to hear the gospel, the full story of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, he is the promised one of God. They got to hear it in their own language so that they could go out and spread that good news to expand the kingdom into the known world. But even those folks who had come from far away, they seemed to have the same burning question on their minds that the disciples had. There's a bit of an elephant in the room. We're going to discover this from the rest of the speech. Brothers is the audience, but it's Peter who's giving this speech to the brothers, these people who've traveled from far away. And he's going to deal with the elephant in the room, the pressing question that's still on their minds. It's the same question that the disciples had right before Jesus ascended. They're wondering, when is God going to restore the throne of David? Because they still looked at the crooked generation around them and they looked into the throne room. They knew their Bibles. They knew what it said in Psalm 132, verse 11, for example, where it says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. The anticipation was that when the Messiah came, he would be a new David. He would be like David. He would bring us back to the glory days of Israel, you know, like it was in David's time. So there was all this expectation that when Messiah came, it would be a new, uncorrupted king sitting on the throne of Israel. And we know that this is still an elephant in the room. It's still a problem. Even though these guys had traveled from far, they had witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they had heard about Jesus rising from the dead, but they were still looking into the throne room saying, when are you going to deal with that corruption? We know this because of the way Peter addresses them in the whole rest of the speech. Okay, so that's the background. That's the setting. We'll get a little further than one word now. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You see, David is dealing with this pressing questions on their mind. When will you restore the nation of Israel? When will you give us a new David? And Peter's saying, okay, let's talk about David. You're looking into the throne room for salvation. You're looking into the throne room for a a, a fix to our corrupt problem in our society. But if you're looking where David sat, let me tell you something about David, because I'm about to compare and contrast him with a far better king. David, this one you're seeking, the new David, he died. He's buried. You can go see his tomb. Now let me tell you about someone else, someone greater. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, it's interesting, he refers to David as a prophet. He doesn't refer to David as the Messiah. He doesn't refer to David even as a king, but rather as a prophet, someone who points us towards someone greater. That's what prophets do. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. You see, Peter's quoting Psalm 132 there. He's naming the elephant in the room. Yes, I know. I know what's on your mind. You're looking to the throne room of this nation for the solution. And he quotes it, knowing that God had sworn that oath, verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh See corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. You see, Peter is addressing the pressing question. People are wanting tangible power, they're wanting a restoration to the glory days of their nation. But Peter is saying, you're looking in the wrong place if you're looking just on David's throne, because there's a greater king. There's a king of kings. And it's what makes him unique among all other kings in history is that when he died, he walked out of his own tomb. No other. We can't say that about any other king. And look where Peter brings our attention now. If, we've, if we're looking into the throne rooms of this world for salvation, look where Peter brings our attention. He, he raises up our gaze. It has us look a bit higher. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. See, that's throne room language right there. A throne room has a, a throne where the king sits, and there's also someone seated at the right hand of the king. And that signifies equal authority in the kingdom. See, Peter is saying, let's go to a higher throne room. I know you're looking where David sat, but fix your eyes a bit higher. Take us to the throne room of the universe. Be therefore exalted at the right hand of God. You know, the one who created the universe. That's where Jesus has been exalted. He's seated at the right hand of the king above all kings, the creator of the universe. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Who's in this throne room of the universe? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three are mentioned in verse 33. The word Trinity never appears in the Bible, but it's depicted in several places, including this one. See what we begin to see when we raise our eyes higher? In the throne rooms of this world, and we go into the throne room of the whole universe, we see this is the only place from which salvation can come, where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit exist, governing the universe. Salvation comes from the love of the Father through the work of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation. I'm going to say that again. Salvation comes from the love of the Father through the work of the son on the cross by the power of the holy spirit this is where peter directs the attention of people who are looking into the earthly throne rooms for salvation he's saying raise your eyes a bit higher look upon the father and the son and the spirit this holy spirit that you're witnessing being poured out it's proof that jesus is seated there governing the universe and just to make his point really clear just in case we're missing it He brings our attention back to David one more time, just as a compare and contrast. Look what he says in verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter's quoting David there. Psalm 110 begins with that statement. And what Peter is saying here is when we look at David, we see this prophet pointing to the better king. And he got a glimpse, David did in his writings, of ultimately what Jesus would accomplish. That as he sits at the right hand of the Father, he would make the enemy of our souls his footstool. Because when he went to the cross... He dealt with the one thing that separates us from the Father. That's our sin. And when he walked out of the tomb, he conquered death itself. The greatest tools of the enemy coming against us, sin and death. Jesus defeated them. So now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And the enemy himself, Satan himself, is under his feet. He's under his authority now because Jesus has conquered the devil. This is what David foresaw prophetically. And this is what Peter is pointing us to. David's not seated there at the right hand of the father, but Jesus is. David simply got a glimpse. If we're looking for salvation, there's one place for it. I'm always thinking about application. How do we apply the scripture into our lives? And, uh, well, I don't need to remind any of you here that it's an election year. Everybody got a little nervous when I said that. It's an election year, isn't it? And I think we would do well to take the, the lessons from this scripture and keep our attention focused on the right throne room. If we're looking for salvation from this corrupt generation, I, I think we probably know by now, don't we? Salvation itself, it's not going to come from the throne rooms of this world. It's not going to come from the White House or the Kremlin or Beijing or the United Nations or Downey Street. It's going to come from the throne room of the universe. Salvation comes from the love of the Father through the work of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. I have people ask me um, occasionally, okay, routine, okay, quite often, why i don't preach politics most people by the way thank me for not preaching politics yeah, you're welcome <laughs> but some people do some people do say why why don't you it's a missed opportunity you have a pulpit it's a platform you could persuade people to vote the right way why don't you use it for that and the honest answer is i'm just not that interested because I'm so much more interested in the kingdom of God. I find it so much more compelling and so much less divisive and more hopeful to focus on that throne room above every other throne room, the one place that salvation can come from. And when we understand that there's a king above all kings, then we can truly engage in this world and do the work of the kingdom. There is a lot of corruption. There's a lot broken in this world. And salvation is going to come from God and the three persons of the Trinity by the power of the Holy Spirit flowing into our lives, flowing into our church, and through us into this broken and corrupt world so that we can truly be His hands and feet in this world. There's no other source that can truly deal with the corruption, the crookedness of this world. Peter would go on to say in Acts chapter 4, Verse 12, you'd really get on the nose about this. In, in Acts 4.12, Peter says, There's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a good lesson. This is a good thing for us to remember over the course of this next year because as I'm reading it in the headlines, both of the political parties in our country are using salvation language. Vote for us and we'll save our democracy, right? We need to be careful about paying too much attention to that. Salvation comes from the love of the Father, through the work of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now what happens when we realize that we've maybe put too much attention or even hope in these earthly power structures, and these earthly kings? Well, the The people are about to find out, because they've done this. They're interested in finding the new David, and Peter shows them Christ is the one that they need. Let's see how it plays out for those of us who maybe need that correction a little bit. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There's an inaudible "Uh uh-oh. Yeah, you 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 dismissed Jesus in your pursuit of worldly power, you see. And, and, and we might need this message this morning. If we've been looking for salvation from this crooked generation through worldly means, we've dismissed Jesus too. And what happens when we realize that? When we realize that we've put our hope in the wrong place, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Those of you who are around during Pastor Chuck's time here, he would always get to this point in the sermon, and he would say, now what? <laughs> this is the now what. What do we do? If we've been putting our hope and our faith and our expectation and worldly means for salvation, we realize it's, we've been looking in the wrong place, the wrong throne room, and we see that Jesus is the one source of salvation, what do we do? Verse 39, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent. Repent. Repentance is just turning. You turn away from the thing you were pursuing, and you turn towards Christ. That's what repentance is. It's very simple. It's turning. Tim Keller, in his wonderful little book, Counterfeit Gods, I've been rereading a lot of his work since he died last May, in counterfeit gods he deals with this if we realize we've been putting importance or hope in a counterfeit god looking for salvation somewhere where it can't really be offered he tells us what to do when we realize we've done that in this I read you this quote the only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of our counterfeit gods is to turn that's repentance is turn back to the true one, the living God. He's the only one who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Repent, turn to God. Peter said to them, repent, be baptized. Baptism is simply a Uh, a symbolic representation of that turning. You get submerged in the waters of baptism, leaving your old self, your sinful self, that's pursuing counterfeit gods behind in the water. And when you emerge out of the threshold of the water, you participate in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, and you live with a new life in Him. That's turning. That's baptism. That's what that's about. And there's a regeneration that happens in our inner man and woman. When we baptize, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This better power, this outpouring that comes from the throne room of the universe. It's what we're longing for. It's what we're looking for in the corrupt throne rooms of this world that they can never offer. But when we repent, when we turn, when we're baptized, we receive this better power, this promise that God delights in giving to us. Verse 39 for the promise is for you. Remember he's de- he's talking with these men who had traveled from these faraway nations. Remember the map Pastor Heather showed last Sunday. This promise is for you, verse 39, and for your children and all who are far off. They're going to go back to their countries and they're going to share this love of God through the gospel that they've heard through Pentecost. And they're going to spread this Holy Spirit far and wide. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added to that that day about 3,000 souls. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When I think about that phrase, save yourselves from this crooked generation, I I can't help but realize this age-old tradition we have as humans to think that the real crooked generation, the real corrupt generation, is the one just younger than our own. You notice this? That's probably why a youth director told me, save yourself from this crooked generation when I was a teenager. And it's probably why when I look at the um, is it Gen Z, what are you, Jake? Are you Gen Z? Millennial Gen Z. Yeah, just varying levels of corruption. Yeah, Millennial Gen Z. The baby boomers feel that way about me, the Gen Xers, you know. I realize the Gen X is the only uncorrupted generation. That was the first time I got an applause from uh, somebody on that. Obviously not. But we we tend to do that, right? But the, uh, the reality is we're all sin. All have sinned in Falling short of the glory of God. We all need salvation, no matter what generation we're in. But I was thinking about that because I wanted to leave us with just an encouraging word. I'm blown away lately by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Gen Z, specifically. The 20-somethings and younger. It's awesome. It's happening. What Peter talked about, what Jesus promised what only the Father and the Son can pour out from the throne room of heaven, it's happening in our time. As I was preparing for this sermon, just in the last 10 days or so, I had three encounters with 20-somethings that I want to share with you right now. These will go by quickly. These are an encouragement to see that this younger generation, they're doing what Peter said, they're turning towards God, and they're receiving the Holy Spirit. As we've been working with the Stanford initiative, we're meeting all these awesome 20-somethings. There was a young man about 25 years old. He'd started coming to this service with his aunt. His aunt invited him, and, but then his aunt um, had to go travel a bunch, but he kept coming on his own. And I noticed him, pulled him aside after church one Sunday, and said to him, what I say to anybody that I notice is new. I said, if you have any questions about the church or about the faith, Contact me, and we'll talk. Well, he took me up on it. And two Thursdays ago, we met in the diner, and we were chatting. And he had a bunch of questions about the church and about theology. He would ask a question. I would do my best to explain it. And I would say, do you have any questions about that? I need to follow up questions. And I described baptism to him, this 25-year-old guy, in the way I just described it to you a minute ago, submerging in the waters. And I said, do you have any questions about that? And he had all this eagerness in his eyes, and he said, yeah, when can I be baptized? (laughs) It was so encouraging. I was like, oh, we're there in the conversation? Let's go. And then last Sunday night, we were at the uh, Stanford dinner that Bill and Laura so graciously host in their home. There's all these, I always drive home from Sunday nights, I'm like, where did all these cool 20-somethings come from? It's awesome there's a young woman sitting there having dinner with some others of us and s- someone asked her how she got to Standwich. And she said, well, I've been in other places and I've heard all the things that are being said in other places and it, um, it kind of just seems like junk food. But when I come to Standwich, you guys are preaching the word and I'm hungry for the meat of the word, she said. <laughs> and that's why she's here. That was so encouraging to hear. They're hungry this generation. They've seen all the corruption of this world. They want the source of salvation. And then just this past week, I spoke with a young man, also in his 20s, who, uh, you know, he's got the world at his fingertips. He's got all the things the world can offer, a uh, good start of a career, good looks, a charm. And uh, he's got this, this burning daydream, this passion his favorite part of his day and his week is reading the Bible and he wants to share that with others and he's pretty sure he's got a calling on his life to go to seminary and become a pastor. And we talked on Wednesday about that and about which seminary might be good for him. And it's possible some of you are hearing these stories about these 20-somethings and you're like, yeah, what about my kid? While we keep praying. I love this word from Peter when he says, this promise is for you and your children who are far off. So we say, thank you, Lord, for the outpouring that's coming upon this generation. We see faith rising, and we ask that you would bring that to completion. You continue pouring out your spirit on all flesh. And for those people who are on our minds and our hearts this morning who aren't there yet, Lord, bring them home. Bring them home. Because we know, and we want them to know, that salvation comes from one place the love of the Father through the work of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.